0: Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others, aspiring to be them, can follow in their footsteps. Okay, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. Uh, this afternoon, we have this uh, Stephanie Rapp Tully of the firm um, Tully Rinky, and there's no relationship to... Tully the there, I'm told. So
1: no, I um I am a telly of Tullyrinky but not the Tully of rinky nor am I related to the Tully of Tullyrinky
0: Excellent. So welcome <laughs> to the show. And uh that in itself is interesting. Thank you. <laughs> so because <laughs> I was prepared to ask ask you a bunch of questions about that. So we can't go down that path.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so I know it's late in the afternoon, but uh just to keep with the theme of the show, latte with a lawyer, tell us how you uh, get started in the morning. What's your favorite beverage of choice?
1: I love coffee. I really do. I, and I love all forms of coffee, iced coffee, hot coffee, macchiato, latte, anything with an espresso, even a chai tea with a shot of espresso. I love coffee and it's not just for the caffeine. I genuinely enjoy the flavor of coffee. Yeah. Um, But on an average day, I drink uh, a hot coffee with vanilla creamer. Nice.
0: Very nice. Do you like coffee ice cream too?
1: I love. Coffee. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> coffee. Yeah, I do too. Coffee ice cream, mocha, ice cream. Like, yeah, I, I like the flavor of coffee too. I I, I agree with you. So, uh, but that I started you know.
1: with coffee very young, uh, not too young, but uh, when I was in high school, I think a senior, when I was able to drive and had a little bit more freedom, I used to yeah. get Friday Frappuccinos nice. um, with, with my carpool group, and so that just started. My love of coffee and then college it just went full in on coffee All excellent
0: up, yeah well of course college you got to stay up right right <laughs> um so where are you from where'd you grow up
1: i um i was born in florida but i mostly grew up in northern virginia
0: okay very good what's it what town like Alexandria.
1: I went to school, the majority of my school years were in Centerville, Virginia, Okay. Um, in Fairfax County.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's a nice place. I have been there many times. I told you I, I lived in Bethesda and I, I know Northern Virginia quite well. Nice place.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. In fact, I think we used to go to the, uh, they used to have the circus at uh, George Mason. Yes. They still do that?
1: I I don't know. I haven't honestly I haven't been to the circus in probably yeah. 15, 20 years but I don't know if they still do it anymore I took my um, kids really after pandemic you know during the pandemic I don't yeah
0: know. it was a long time ago now but I took my kids there when they were little we went I went out there to the summary they, they had they held the circus there. it was fun
1: yeah I, I think I did that once um or yeah, twice yeah. growing up
0: exactly so um tell us what kind of work you do
1: Sure, I do employment discrimination litigation. I represent uh, employees against the employer facing discrimination. The grand majority of my practice is federal-related federal employment. Okay. uh, Federal employees against whatever agency they work for. I also do uh, private sector employment in Maryland and DC.
0: Very good. How do you get the? um, I'm curious how you how do people find you the the employees that are working for these federal agencies.
1: How do they find me if they Yeah interested? yeah.
0: Yeah, how do you, how, how do they contact you?
1: Oh, well they can call up our office, they can email us. Um we um advertise as being a federal employees uh, attorney uh, law firm so we specialize. That's one of our biggest practice areas. Okay. Uh, specifically federal employees. Uh we do private sector Um, in various states, New York, Texas, like I said, Maryland, DC, uh, California, but our biggest area practice is federal employees. There's a lot of them.
0: Yeah, I met one, we actually had another one, you maybe you saw it on the, uh, the other podcast, we did have another uh, federal employee lawyer as well.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a vast practice, the, there are more government agencies, and I think the grand majority of people can count. Oh, yeah, Um, it's, It's incredible, and um, I always tell clients, I wish that we would not be needed anymore because that would be a great day in our country, but alas, we're needed.
0: Yeah, well, particularly in the last, maybe the last administration, you probably got a little more action than usual.
1: It was definitely a (laughs) change in the tone and tenure of employment in the federal government. There were considerable adjustments, um, particularly there were certain executive orders that changed how we did things right. um, and swinging back now, um, there's been some adjustments as well. Mm. Um, we're facing a new set of adjustments right. um, coming in with particularly the Merit Systems Protection Board. There's a huge slew of changes that are going to be happening with the Merit Systems Protection Board, presumably. Uh, If they pass, and um, that'll just change our practice even more as it relates to the board.
0: Yeah. Um, And you notice when there's a change of administration, the types of cases you get?
1: Yes, I can. I can tell. Um, And it's not really as agency specific. Um, A certain agency will change its tone and tenure towards things. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell you can get that change and i can also tell positive changes too Hmm. so i can also tell when an agency has said oh no we're gonna we're gonna take these things very seriously we're going to deal with them in an appropriate manner they will not be tolerated and we can see that change as well so it's not just the negative i also see changes in the positive yeah no
0: i wasn't even placing value just strictly there is a change of yeah based on on the sort of the flavor yeah but i would think so um I, I noticed, uh, well, yeah, have, I was looking at your, um, profile whistleblower. So you have, you probably have a bunch of that work, but also, I mean, I'm, I'm curious as the population is aging, um, myself included here. I mean, how much of that kind of work do you get like with age discrimination and is that changing at all?
1: There's definitely, um, age discrimination cases that we get there's, I mean, it's kind of an age old thing, not, no pun intended, right. uh, where you know someone elevates themselves, let's take the government, for example, and they, they rise and rise, they increase their grades and steps, grades and steps, grades and steps. And they're at a high level because they've been in the government for so long. Well, someone in that position would be that came in would start at a lower grade and step. So it would be cheaper to have a younger person sure. in the position than an older person, someone with more experience. So we see those types of decisions being made that you know, are age-based. And so they are age-based uh, decisions which are discrimination. Um, and it's unfortunate because when I look at those cases, most of the people that I talk to, the responsible management officials don't discredit the employee um, that much other than to say, oh, they need to be pushed out. They need to go, we need, we need younger blood in here usually some of the things I hear. Right, right. Well, that's still age discrimination, it happens. And with sure. um, a large population of people broaching that area where they've you know, spent 20, 30 years in the government, more and more of those people are facing those types of uh, reactions and decisions.
0: Yeah, I would think so. I, I would think it's more um, pronounced now that, I mean, people need to work longer because the economy has changed, right? They don't wanna get pushed out. They wanna continue okay. to work. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. So I'm wondering, do you
0: see an uptick in those kind of cases that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, we get that. Now, most of the time, age discrimination cases have something else attached to them. Um, so it's not just age, but um, age is definitely a very prevalent protective basis that I deal with.
0: Yeah. yeah interesting. What, what are some of the other types of things that you do? More well, common. it's
1: everything that's covered under, um, just, you know, federal discrimination laws. So race, color, age, sex, religion, uh, disability, um, retaliation, reprisal, you know, all those things are, are protected bases that you cannot take a personnel action against someone on those bases. Um, mm-hmm. harassment, sexual harassment, non-sexual harassment, um, whistleblowers, you mentioned, you know, uh, filing complaints with the Office of Special Counsel, and then eventually going to the Merit Systems Protection Board on those complaints. Um, Those are all things that I do on a regular basis.
0: Got it. Is there anything that is more common than other things that you get involved with?
1: I mean, there are a lot of EEO cases. Hmm. um, And those are probably, if I had to break out my case uh, percentages, yeah, probably grand majority are EEO cases, um, and then merit systems protection board cases, um, and then I also uh, practice in federal district courts in D.C. and Maryland, so though that litigation, um, and then office special counsel, and then I also do uh, retirement issues. So if people are applying for disability retirement or want to appeal a OPM retirement decision, things like that, I also
0: do. Mm. Gotta go. Do you try cases? You actually go into in court?
1: I I I do. They don't typically employment cases don't tend to get to trial. Right. <laughs> um, they tend to get to a point where either they resolve one way or the other, either in settlement um or on motions. But um, if a case is gonna go to trial, it's probably going to resolve um in a settlement. So I in court, um, I haven't had too many trials because the grand majority of my cases at that point settle. Right. In the EEOC, I've done a ton of hearings and they're kind of akin, where it's a presentation of evidence, calling of witnesses, etc., before a judge in this case, an administrative judge. And I've done many of those.
0: Oh, good, good. But that, that's not a jury, that's a, that's a judge, Correct. yeah. Okay, interesting. And and so I I saw you have an interesting background on how you got here. Tell us about that. How'd you get into this?
1: Well, in college, I wanted to be a television producer. I went to school for it, and I did a couple of cool internships um, doing it. And I graduated college in three years to move out to LA to pursue television. Um, I got out there. I got hired by a talent management company, which is a lot of people's first steps into the industry. Um, and then the writer's strike happened, writer's strike of 2008, and it shut down a lot of Hollywood. You couldn't uh-huh. get jobs anywhere. I lost my job during that writer's strike. Um, and then I couldn't, I couldn't get employed. Um, I, I remember I applied to like three different Starbucks and I couldn't get employed <laughs> because so many people were looking for jobs. Oh, sure. Um, so at a certain point of doing odd jobs, I, um, I said, well, I got to do something else. I can't, I can't keep doing this. And I thought, well, what am I good at? really good at arguing. And law was a passion of mine in college. I had a business minor, um, but they actually told me I couldn't take any more law courses without actually having a business major. So I got kicked out and I wasn't allowed (laughs) to take any more. So I thought about that and I was like, you know, I really enjoyed those couple law classes I got to take. I took uh, a class on um, industry law, television industry law, film industry law. And I really enjoyed that. So I went to law school figuring uh, maybe that's the way I need to go.
0: Interesting. How'd you get the bug to be a a TV producer?
1: So this goes back to my middle school drama teacher. He and I built a television studio in a broom closet um, at Rocky Run Middle School. Shout out to Mike Tim. (laughs) <laughs> um, and we produced the morning news. Um, I helped him build the studio. I, w- I did it for two years, and then in high school, I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had also a television studio. I I was involved in that for three years, um, so I just, I loved news. I loved television production. I loved editing, um, and so that that's why I wanted to go there. In college, I had the opportunity to um, do a news internship with Fox News Edge, which is their affiliate service. okay um, And that was really, really cool. I covered stories all over Washington DC and the house and interviewed a whole bunch of people. Um, but then I also had the opportunity to work on the West Wing. And I
0: saw that I saw that
1: yeah that, that changed me forever. That's really yes. that kind of production it was it was magical. I was obsessed from day one of stepping foot on the lot. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, so that's why I moved out to L.A.
0: <laughs> so would it be fair to say that you're really your passion and, you know, you, you need to get back to that in some way?
1: No, I, I think my I think passions change in life. I have very fond memories of that life and that that work and those um, I have some really cool stories, um, but L- LA was not a place I wanted to continue to live anymore. And yes, you can do production other places, but it's just not something I was passionate about anymore. I find more passion in advocating. My stage is now the courtroom. It's not a, a TV set, right? It. It's yeah. before others advocating on behalf of others. And so I've, I, in my mind, they're similar. Mm. I'm producing a case, I'm creating something to tell a story, to show someone's point of view. And I'm trying to convey that to my audience, which is typically a judge. So in my mind, it's about the same, it's just a different vehicle of doing that.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, that's an interesting way to sort of have the, uh, the uh, throughput there or the um, through line. That's interesting way to think about it, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Is there anyone that sort of, aside from your teacher with with, um, production, do you have any big influencers that sort of you look up to? in the business, in the profession?
1: I had a lot of really great law professors. Um, Honestly, there's very few at Toro Law that I I can't name that as incredible. Really? Um, I had some really, really incredible professors. Um, Was that in New
0: York City, by the way, in in New York?
1: it's It's on Long Island. Long Island. Yeah, the cool thing about Toro is that it is in between two courthouses. So it has a federal courthouse and a state courthouse within a block from the school. So we had really cool access to the courthouses. And um, Myra Berman is a professor, and she put together this program um, with the school so that we could get real motions and practices and and problems, draft uh, a response, and then argue it in front of the real judge that saw the real thing before and get feedback. It was incredible. And I did two semesters of that and got really cool experience of arguing in front of judges in real time about real cases. I mean, they of course redacted a whole bunch of it. I mean, it was different information they changed important details, but it was real. These were things that had appeared before them and we got to argue them and then get really great constructive feedback. Um, And I think, I, I, that changed me. That experience absolutely changed me.
0: Hmm. So what do you think works? I mean, what'd you learn from that? Like what work, what makes you effective in front of a judge to win your argument?
1: I think one of the most important things is reading the judge because you need to know when to amp up your argument. You need to know when to pull back. You need to know when to move on to your next point. You need to take their questions not just as the question that they're asking you, which of course you need to answer, but yep. as indications of where you need to go. Yeah. So you have a roadmap when you come into an oral argument, but you need to be able to adjust that roadmap based on the experience that you're having with your judge. And that, that experience is, is where your argument needs to go, not based on what you've preconceived in your head.
0: Got it, got it, got it. That's interesting. So is there any way to prepare for that? Or are you just doing it on the fly in real time?
1: Oh, yes, you, um, there's something called mooting. I mean, you can moot with uh, other attorneys. Um, I was on the moot court um, honors board. And so you can have um, other people just throw you questions, softball questions. So you have experience on how to answer easy questions, because that can be really jarring the first time it happens, because you think it's a trick question. Um, and then really hard off the wall questions that are really left field, but it doesn't matter what the question is, you have to be able to answer it. Um, And then practicing kind of what I called canned responses to things that there's no way you could have known that that was going to be a question. So how do you respond? And having those kind of canned responses in your arsenal um, available. But yeah, you can practice a lot. Um, You can have, I mean, not just attorneys can moot you. You can have um, lay people ask you questions so that, you know, if you can't explain it to a lay person, you can't explain it well. So you need to be able to explain it to a lay person that doesn't always understand it. I think someone in law school told me this, you know, the fifth grader level, you need to be able to explain it at a fifth graders level. Um, and if you can't do that, you can't explain it.
0: Well, I would say that's true in any business really. You right. know, you have to simplify complex issues, right? So so people can get it because people are just not gonna understand it the way you will.
1: Right, and by right? breaking it down element to element, you then can put your position into those breaking it down. And so if your opponent uh, opposing counsel isn't breaking it down like that, your argument suddenly makes a whole lot more sense just because you've made it clear and very elemental in what you're arguing.
0: Right. So do you use a more structured format besides like sort of bouncing questions off people like you know, a mock trial or a focus group? Do you do, you do those kind of things?
1: I I moot with people in my firm. Um, I actually just had an oral argument before the um, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. I had it in December Um, and it was one of my first, you know, appellate oral arguments in quite some time. Um, And so I got mooted by a a bunch of people, Um, you know, there's the age old practice in the mirror, Um, but I am also meticulous in my preparation. I always prepare a folder. And it has my roadmap. It has every case and every brief and a synopsis of it in case the judge says, hey, remember the Johnson case? What was the holding in that? And so you have just the quick snapshot of it. Um, and then I have my intros and conclusions and all important information. So I'm very meticulous, meticulous about my prep. Yeah. Most of the time, I don't use any of it. I, I just go. But going but, through that
0: process prepares you, right? Yeah,
1: Exactly. Exactly. That was like flashcards. I never actually used the flashcards. It was creating the flashcards. Right. That was important. Yeah.
0: But can you bring like a, I mean, I've heard people say they bring iPads into the, into the core as opposed to folders, right? Can you bring, do you, what do you think yeah. about that?
1: You can do that. I've never done that. I'm I'm still, um, I guess in, in that sense, I'm a little old school because I still like my folders um, because technology can go down. Internet could not work suddenly your battery isn't charged. But if I have my paper, unless my paper catches on fire, it's gonna be fine.
0: Good and then point. if my
1: paper is catching on fire, we have bigger problems.
0: Good point. So I was gonna ask you about that. We're leading into that, but like, what other technology does you, do, you, do you or your firm use and leverage and like?
1: Well, we actually were very fortunate with the pandemic. Um, we have a very virtual setting. Um, so we were able to keep on rolling um, okay. during the shutdown because the grand majority of our systems are virtual. Um, we had video phones um, in everyone's office when people were in offices. So we would talk to each other. You know, I could talk to somebody in Albany face-to-face like this yeah. um, before the pandemic. So when we transitioned, there really wasn't a whole lot of transition. Um, and we have, as a firm, utilized technology extensively. Um, and I think other firms um, and other businesses are starting to catch up to the courts. I know we're starting to catch up to that, um, but we, we utilize technology, except for my folder example. I'm very much <laughs> <a> technology. <laughs> you're person.
0: young too. Um, well, so when you say use it extensively, what does that mean? Like, tell me more about that.
1: So we, um, we have virtual databases, we have virtual systems. Everything is um, um, is accessible through, like I can take my laptop anywhere and work. Um, we have VPM capabilities. Yeah. Um, I can do a hearing sitting here at home just as well as I can do a hearing sitting in my office, just as well as I could do it in a hearing room. Um, and sometimes it's a little bit even more convenient because I have two screens and I can right. have Documents on this side, and
0: yeah, you know, I have three screens right now. By the yeah. way,
1: <laughs> yeah. it makes it so much easier. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Life, you don't have that. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yep.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, weird. interesting. Um, and I, I assume you, I was, I was on the phone with someone before this, and they, I was surprised, but they use uh Salesforce, you know, as a CRM. And I've never heard a law firm using like a CRM.
1: We have Salesforce, we you use do use web
0: Salesforce web.
1: too. Yeah, Ah. Um, so we use Salesforce um, as a product as part of our uh, technology portfolio.
0: To keep client information and collaborate?
1: Uh, It's more for what we use. It is more for tracking consultations. Okay. Um, So transport of consult information, basic information, where that consult goes, what the next steps are potential agreements we're going to draft for that potential client and then the responses
0: um so you've built workflow you've built workflow into the into it yes correct yeah there must be a a legal rendition of salesforce that they've customized or did you do does does the firm do that work you don't know
1: i honestly wasn't involved in the bringing on salesforce i just use it you're Uh, just a user of it I use it, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big user of Salesforce, and have used it for years. And I just like the whole concept of, you know, keeping organized, right?
1: Yes. It's, well, everything we can do to organize, we do. We are yeah. meticulous.
0: Got it. How many law lawyers in the firm?
1: Uh, there's anywhere between fifty to seventy-five uh, attorneys. We're a mid-sized firm, and like I said, multiple states. So we're New York. DC, Texas, California.
0: Got it, and what's the, is there like a core focus of the firm?
1: Um, In terms of practice area, two core focuses, like I said, federal employment, and then we also do um, military uh, representation. We have a considerable number of former JAGs um, and military veterans that work for the firm that handle matters relating to service members and veterans.
0: OK, so there is a there is a theme there around people's livelihoods. Yeah.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. That yeah. OK. A core theme.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's the core theme. OK, got it, got it, got it. Very interesting. Interesting. Um, so would you advise someone to go to law school today? Um, and what would you say? Let's assume you would. What
1: would you tell them? Uh, really think about it. What is it that you want to do? Why? And understand, I mean, if you're independently wealthy and can pay for law school on your own, wonderful. But if you're going to have to take out loans to do law school, um, I think you need to make some very careful planning decisions in looking at that, because law school debt is no joke. And it doesn't go away. (laughs) People have tried. (laughs) They won't do it. it's something that, I mean, I'm going to be paying my college loan or my law school loans off after I'm done paying my my kids' college loans. I mean, it's just going to be around in my life forever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that has to be an educated decision. If you choose to do that, you need to have the education of what that is, what it'll look like when you graduate, um, understanding how to work within those um, financial situations, what it looks like. Uh, Cause I did not have that understanding whatsoever uh, when I went to law school, it was only after I got out and had to start dealing with that, that I understood it. So mm-hmm. I think that I would advise someone to spend a lot of time understanding what that, the financial aspect of it. Um, and then really gauge as to why is it that you want to go to law school? Do you want to go to law school to advocate for people? Is, do you want to go to law school because you, you just like the idea of law? Is there another avenue that you could pursue that would accomplish the same goals? Um, I think that, you know, the career of being a paralegal is woefully underappreciated, and it's a phenomenal profession, a phenomenal job makes a lot of money if you're in the right Without the debt,
0: without all the the debt, debt. right? (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are other places. So if you go through those two considerations very carefully and you still get to, yes, I want to go to law school, go to law school.
0: Yeah, got it, got it. Interesting. Okay, very good. Um, well, you can say, I mean, you can, you can almost all professional schools, you can say the same thing, whether you go to business school, law school, medical school, they're all expensive. Yes. Right. The,
1: the difference between law school, and I don't know if this is true for medical school, but the difference between law school is that the ABA doesn't allow you to work more than 20 hours while you're in law school full-time. So unless you're going part-time, you cannot have a full-time job. Okay. You're not, I guess hypothetically you could, but you're not supposed to. Oh. So it, it makes it very difficult. I don't know if that's changed. When I went to law school, that was the rule. So I couldn't, unless I did law school part-time, I couldn't also have a job, um, a substantial job. So that makes paying for it even more difficult.
0: Right. But is it even practical to have a, um, a full-time job while you're in law school. I mean, it's a tough curriculum.
1: I mean, that's the reason for the rule. No, you should be focusing on what you need to be focusing on. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't advise that. But it just makes it, some people think that they can come in and still earn what they had been earning previously, unless they're coming from college. Um, and that's just simply not the case. Yeah, I,
0: I can't even imagine that. I went to uh, graduate school and went to business school and I worked part-time. I was a research assistant because I had, I paid for myself to go, to go back to school and I spent every penny I, I saved.
1: <laughs> yeah. yep. But
0: um, you know, it's, it's tough to balance all those things, I guess, is, is my, is my point. Sound easy.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and then understanding what um, just having a basic understanding of financial aid, because I didn't understand there was a difference between what kind of loans, interest rates, where you could get a loan from, the variety of financial aid available. I really didn't understand that. And I think if I had a better understanding of that, maybe some things would be different. Um, Certainly my planning would be.
0: It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you raise up. um, So financial literacy in general, like for lawyers, for doctors is lacking, right? Yes. Um and like those are like life, it's funny. I used to I used to tell my kids, I mean, you know, we're gonna get some life skills here, right? You should know about those things because when you get in the real world, it, you you're suggesting that you didn't know you didn't think about those things, but like you can't survive unless you have those basic skills, yeah. right?
1: I honestly think it should be taught in high school. It should be. Because even if you're even if you don't go to college you still need to have financial literacy you still need to understand a mortgage got to understand a contract a check is as a con you know you got to understand all of these basic elements that most people don't find out until something has gone wrong right <laughs> or they get much older and they're doing it and they've been doing it for quite some time um, but you know understanding a mortgage and buying a house i think is critical and i don't i don't understand why there isn't a course in high school to teach you what it means to have a credit card, what an APR is, how mean, what it what credit is. All of those things should be taught in high school.
0: Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, listen, I mean, when I went to school there was like home economics and woodworking and stuff was like I mean, why wouldn't there be some basic my financial literacy. My daughter actually in her school there was a teacher that did teach that and it was terrific.
1: Right, that's awesome.
0: But it's not part of the core curriculum and it should be, right?
1: It should be be a part of the math curriculum. I mean, trigonometry is wonderful and excellent, but why not on top of trigonometry also teach some financial literacy?
0: Yeah, trigonometry doesn't even make sense to (laughs) teach in high school.
1: I just want to point out, oh, the math teachers are going to hate me for this. But when my math teacher told me you're never going to have your calculator in your pocket, I have my calculator in my pocket at all times. So.
0: Of course, I mean <laughs> mo- math in the real world is pretty basic. You don't need to know any of that stuff.
1: No, the calculation part, but the concepts I think are critical. Yeah. You need to understand concepts. Um, something like compound interest, I, I I would have benefited substantially from having a class in that in high school.
0: Right, that's true. Anyway, all right. Well, this has been interesting. Well, on that note, I'm going to I'm gonna let you get back to uh, being financially literate <laughs> and take care of your business. If somebody wants to get um, in touch with you, what's the best way to connect with you?
1: Sure. They can contact me either by email or phone. Um, my Our firm's telephone number is 202-787-1900. And you can reach me by email, Tully at FedFEDAttorney.com.
0: Excellent. All right. So this has been my pleasure to have Stephanie Rapp Tully from the firm No Relation, Tully okay. <laughs> Um, And uh, th- this show has been sponsored by Emotion Track. And we use artificial intelligence to collect nonverbal insights that people use uh, for trial and uh,
1: mediations. So thank, thank you, you so very much, much you. Stephanie.